Let's talk about chemtrails. I'm not going to bury the lead here. Chemtrails are not a real thing. It's a conspiracy theory based on a misunderstanding of a real thing that happens called contrails. Now, I want to say up front because it's normal for people to get upset or uncomfortable when someone else calls false on something in which they firmly believe. And it's important to note that conspiracies do happen. Not all conspiracy theories are hokum, despite the term having taken on a kooks and foil hats veneer over the past several decades. The practice of calling people conspiracy theorists to discredit them can be harmful to discourse, and it's a tried and true method of making your critics look like lunatics, especially for those who hold political or military power. And conspiracies of all shapes and sizes take place within politics and business and other sectors all the time. The majority of them we will never know about, and the ones that do eventually come to light usually get a new name because of the derogatory implications that have been attached to the word conspiracy. So Watergate became a scandal, not a conspiracy. That's how this naming convention tends to work. But all that said, there are such things as facts, in the sense that we can put them to the test using the scientific model, and ignoring such facts in favor of your conspiracy theory of choice is, well, it's an option. You're totally allowed to do that. But it's an option that implies a willingness to ignore reality in favor of comforting or personally resonant fictions. We've established that water boils at specific temperatures at various altitudes. You can question that, and you can even question the expertise of the so-called experts who have conducted the tests to establish this physical reality. But if you look at the preponderance of evidence that has accumulated regarding the boiling point of water and choose to ignore it, all of it, decrying it as fake news and false flags and fabricated evidence as part of a conspiracy by the scientific establishment to convince you that the boiling point of water is not where you think it is. Well, there's probably nothing that I'm going to say to convince you otherwise. At that point, you are relying on faith, not evidence. And very probably post hoc are choosing any facts that you can locate that seem to support your conception of things, whether or not they come from legitimate sources. And it's difficult to rationally argue against a point of view that is by definition irrational. So we can all believe whatever we like, and once in a great while, a conspiracy of this flavor ends up being true. But in almost every case, especially when the arguments against the establishment are coming from conspiracy theory YouTube videos and blogs, the majority actually does know best. It's a less thrilling conclusion than one that allows you to feel like the misunderstood genius who sees through the man's lies, I know but it's typically how things shake out, nonetheless. So all that said, the chemtrail conspiracy theory is a long-lasting one, in part because for a very long while, officials didn't take it particularly seriously, and experts either didn't see it as something worth addressing officially, or didn't explain the science of it to the public particularly well. 
People could see with their own eyes that something funky was happening with the planes flying overhead, but not all the time, which implied, empirically, that these planes leaving cloud-like trails in the sky were doing something unusual. And out of that visual stemmed a variety of theories about what those navy-suited black helicopter flying never-do-wells in the government might be up to, flying these now-menacing-seeming machines over our now-fragile-seeming homes and loved ones. Some of the more prominent chemtrail conspiracy theories hold that these clouds trailing behind these planes are meant to modify the weather or psychologically manipulate the masses, making them either more docile or more enraged. There are theories that the clouds release some kind of toxin and that those toxins help control the population by reducing fertility rates, or that the chemicals are the leading cause of everything from Parkinson's disease to autism to allergies. And again, you can kind of understand how some of these correlatory ideas might have come into being. Look at the stats, and we see an increase in incidences of various conditions over the past several decades, and we also see more planes in the sky. Look at the history of human dabbling in fringy technologies, and you see Agent Orange and DDT and asbestos and children playing with mercury in classrooms because we assumed these things were safe for those who handled them, and it just later turned out that this was not the case. Of course, at this point, the concept of contrails, which is a portmanteau of condensation and trail, has been widely publicized and explained quite clearly for those who are willing to take the time to look at and understand those explanations. Under certain atmospheric conditions, water vapor condenses into visible clouds, which is a result of the hot, humid air from the piston and jet engines interacting with the colder air around them. This doesn't happen all the time because, like boiling water, different conditions lead to different physical realities, and the contrails dissipate at different rates for that same reason. If the atmosphere in which they form is already near saturation, meaning it is already filled with water vapor, the trails will last longer, whereas if the atmosphere is dry, the contrails will dissipate quickly. This is well-established science, and there's no disagreement in the scientific community about this. Like with anything, I'm sure you could find a scientist to declare their skepticism about it, as you can find a scientist to declare their skepticism about anything. It's a big group of people, after all, with a wide variety of opinions and belief systems outside of their scientific specialty. But there's no reason to buy into the chemtrail myth. There are people all over YouTube and other social networks who enthusiastically weave tales about how all this fits together and they are generally either impressively misinformed or willfully ignorant. In some cases, they're just doing it for the lols, seeing what they can get other people to believe, a form of trolling that results in broad misunderstandings about fundamental science, which, I mean, I guess everybody needs a hobby, but it's still kind of a douchebag move because of how it warps people's perception about the physical world around them and increases the public's mistrust in verified, well-regarded science. But interestingly, there may, at some point in the near future, actually be something very similar to chemtrails happening in the skies around the world. It wouldn't be harmful chemicals meant to control the population or anything dystopian like that, but it would be a release of non-water particulates from planes, and it would potentially be funded by governments and organizations around the world, some of whom, no doubt, own black helicopters and wear innocuous navy suits, in an effort to, 
more or less, control the weather. Which is some real James Bond villain stuff, I know, but there's a broader intended purpose to it. And that purpose is to essentially save the world. And that, in part, is what I want to talk about today. Geoengineering and our changing perception of what was once considered to be the worst possible plan B ever proposed, but which today is looking more and more like one of the best bad options that we have available. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. I've spoken before on this show about climate change and its potential impacts. Ocean levels will rise, the composition of the ocean will change, the soil will become depleted, vital resources will become more scarce, wars will be fought over those scarce resources and land, because as the ocean levels rise, existing continental borders will move inward, the coasts disappearing. There's an episode I recorded in 2016 called Colossal and Connected, if you're interested in hearing more about how the interconnectedness of all of these things is what allows them to stay generally in balance, and which quite probably led to the evolution of complex life to begin with, but which is also the root of all of these problems. Pluck one string and the whole instrument vibrates. You can't increase global temperature levels without impacting to some degree or another, the price of tea in China and the local politics in your hometown. All of these things are connected, and as a huge swath of them change all at once, within a very short period of time, things we take for granted and assume are sturdy and unyielding, our realities of modern life, will also change. Now, there is, quote-unquote, doubt about this potential chain of events in the sense that there are political and media entities spreading doubt. But within the scientific community, amongst the people who have no horse in this race other than figuring out what's happening and quantifying it the best that they can, making useful predictions and trying to help us understand what it will all look like, there is no real doubt, except in the degree of the change how rapidly that change will occur, and things of that nature. There are legitimate quibbles about those data and how quickly temperatures will rise, whether or not the Arctic ice caps will melt completely in 10 years or 200 years. But the handful of scientists who are denying any kind of climate change is occurring are kind of like the scientists that will tell you chemtrails are real and that anything strange that happens in the world is definitely caused by aliens. You can choose to believe them over the 99.99% of other scientists, because it suits your existing biases on the subject, or you can accept that these outliers are probably misinformed or following their own preconceived notions on the subject and take an earnest look at what the vast majority of informed people in the world are saying instead. Unfortunately, this is a topic that's become difficult to discuss rationally, especially here in the US, because it's become politicized to an incredible degree. Politicians play to their base instead of feeding their base helpful but gross-tasting medicine. And that's true on both sides, though this particular field tends to be denial territory for the political right more often than the left here in the U.S. But at the end of the day, both sides are engaging in what's sometimes called predatory delay, meaning even if they're talking a big game about how climate change is worrying and we need to do something about it, their actions tend to show otherwise. 
They maybe enact a few smallish politically popular changes, but otherwise they allow the status quo to churn on unabated. There are not many Democrats running on a platform of completely phasing out fossil fuels in the next decade, as much as they'll gladly talk a big game about sustainability and positive environmental change. Now, the reasons for this are manifold, but the main, easiest-to-understand rationale here, I think, is to imagine what it would actually mean to do as much as we possibly could to adjust our climate change trajectory. It would most likely mean power rationing, at least for a period of time, until the gobs of fossil fuel-based energy we generate could be replaced with cleaner alternatives. There's little doubt that we could do it, but it will take time, and any plan that goes into action immediately would destroy power-hungry industries and seriously hinder the lifestyles of most people in the developed world to some degree or another, people who have become accustomed to having access to as much energy as they can use, and whenever they want to use it. Certain materials would likewise need to disappear overnight, including a wide variety of the plastics that are found in absolutely everything, and other materials that don't have a closed-loop end-of-life plan that will keep them from ending up in landfills. This would unfortunately represent the vast majority of materials currently used in production, and as a consequence, would mean the majority of things that are made would need to cease being made for a period of time. And some would never come back, as we don't have a viable alternative way of producing it without those unsustainable materials. On top of that, we'd almost certainly need to either ration or completely cease production of meat, as the meat industry is a huge producer of greenhouse gases. So eating habits would need to change for pretty much everyone, and new products to take their place would need to enter the market and scale incredibly quickly. The number of cars on the road would need to be substantially reduced, likely to around one-tenth or less of the current driving population. That would mean upending the entire industry, but also reworking the layout of our cities and our businesses so we can get to where we need to be, but also potentially require less commuting in the first place. So entirely new systems of organization, work, transportation, food production, energy production, and everything that those facets of life touch, so essentially everything, would need to change overnight, more or less. That would mean pushing half-baked plans into production before they're ready, and it would mean reallocating GDP's worth of funds into enacting these changes, most of which probably wouldn't work as intended, and all of which would piss off essentially everyone. It would mean a huge swath of people losing their jobs, and it would mean a collapse of the country's income for several years, maybe a decade at the minimum. What politician, in their right mind, would want to deal with all of that? Especially since the majority of politicians are career politicians, so their professional future is dependent on staying well-liked and respected. Who would drive that nail into their prospects just because it might you know, save the planet in some vague future. It's a strange way of thinking about this subject, I know, but it's very easy to convince ourselves that the climate situation is not as dire as it quite possibly is, when our immediate day-to-day priorities are on the line. And especially if you're an ambitious politician, there's no way you're playing the bad guy and throwing yourself under the bus to save the planet while an ungrateful country stockades you for it. 
their own lives sucking a bit or a lot more because of your actions, even though your actions might be saving them and making the world a better place in the long term. Our current system of capitalism-fueled liberal democracy is not built for that type of long-term thinking. And this is one example of how that's the case. And so even if we can all agree, like most of the world outside the U.S. has agreed, and like most of the science community has agreed, that there's something happening here and the path we're on is not a good one, the chances of doing something about it, something meaningful, are very slim. The chances of doing something effective in the near future, something that doesn't have immediate concrete effects that we can all see and touch and that solves some kind of problem we are experiencing right now. Because those types of solutions are very difficult to shop to constituents who usually, operating en masse, thinking tribally as a mob, are more concerned about the pains of today than the agonies of tomorrow. There are some really solid, truly impressive long-term and even medium-term actions being taken around the world. And since I do see this as a truly disconcerting situation, I think that's amazing. Some of these efforts in the realm of energy production, green architecture, the slow but faster than average shifting of norms to less destructive alternatives, and even smaller efforts that have big impacts, like changing the materials that we use in plastic bags or providing parking and carpool lane benefits to hybrid and electric cars. This is all very good news. I'm absolutely not trying to diminish what's being done in all of these spaces. But the fact of the matter is that our climate models keep getting steeper and more alarming. Climate change is happening faster than we thought it would, and in many regions the impacts are already worse than the worst-case scenarios that were projected a decade ago. This is happening faster than even the biggest stick-in-the-mud pessimists suspected, which means in practice that although we gave it our all, or at least our all within the confines of our political and economic system's ability to handle this kind of thing. It hasn't proven to be enough. This is happening. The climate is changing, and it's unlikely that we can do anything to stop it. Facing this new reality, it's been interesting to watch the climate change is not real political argument morph into new shapes. The current iteration is that, okay, maybe things are shifting, but maybe that's a good thing. More summer days. Those miserable, freezing climates and seasons won't be so miserable and freezing anymore. It'll be wonderful, these politicians claim. As they leave their prior stances that climate change isn't happening or that humans aren't contributing to it if it is in the waste bins of history. For these people, it's never been about the science to begin with. It's always been about pandering to their base and reinforcing the existing biases of their constituents. To them, all of this talk about ecological calamity is just a talking point their political opponents try to use against them, rather than a reality that's knocking on our front door. And for some of their opponents, that's unfortunately absolutely the case. With people like this running our governments, and with the system of incentives that inform their actions, it's frankly amazing that anything gets done. But back to the claim about climate change being a good thing. The truth of the matter is that, yes, actually, there will probably be some winners, relatively at least, in the coming decades as the climate shifts. They won't be absolute winners, as our economies are also interconnected, that collapses and failures elsewhere can heavily impact our own local economies in ways that are hard to predict and imagine until it happens. Suddenly, you can't buy light bulbs at any price 
or pineapple goes on the endangered species list, or beef is unaffordable except by the millionaire class. Shortages and shifts like this happen during wars, and those are the types of far-ranging, deleterious effects we will be seeing, though perhaps on a more permanent basis. Imagine the rationing and shortages that happened during World War II, and expand those outward to encompass more fields, and then make that permanent. That's what we could be looking at here. But in isolated pockets, some things will probably improve. Russia actually stands to gain quite a bit from this shift, as the majority of their geography is currently all but inaccessible, and definitely not livable because it's so cold. This changeup could open up huge swaths of their land for development and for mining and harvesting. The same is true for Canada and Finland and other Arctic states. Above and beyond the new Arctic politics that are developing as a result of the North Pole melting and new trade routes becoming more regularly available, the countries in that region, including the state of Alaska, for those of us here in the U.S., will stand to gain from these shifts to varying degrees. It won't be universally good, and it won't necessarily even be optimal or long-lasting positivity, but it will almost certainly be better than what other countries experience. The Northern Hemisphere will suffer, but not to the same degree that the Southern Hemisphere is likely to suffer. What every country will experience, though, including those Arctic Belt countries, is a lot more extreme weather and flooding and the loss of coastlines. We will need to adjust our hurricane measurement scales to allow for this new reality and the impressively powerful new hurricanes that are on the horizon. We'll start to see tornadoes and blizzards in places we have never had them before. Entire cities will be claimed by the ocean and mass migrations on a scale heretofore unimagined will sweep across the continents with newly homeless people, their cities gone or rendered uninhabitable by these climate change catalyzed events looking for some place to resettle. The mass migrations we've seen over the past few hundred years, which have rattled governments and taxed infrastructures to or beyond operable levels, are nothing compared to what's on the horizon. Perhaps most terrifying, though, is what may happen to our agricultural infrastructure. The entirety of human history has taken place within a very finite climate range. Essentially, the climate we've enjoyed up until recently is the same climate we had back when agriculture was first developed and practiced on scale. So from the beginning of human civilization till just now, we have had the same range of temperatures, the same fluctuations, the same regularity of dips and spikes, the same concept of normal and abnormal, the same basic rhythm. That rhythm, though, and that range are what's falling out of whack. And what that means is that the agricultural staples upon which we've come to rely will no longer be quite so reliable. The methods we've used to feed the world to feed a sprawling population of billions may no longer be able to do that for us. This isn't just a matter of no longer being able to find blueberries year-round at your local Whole Foods. This is a matter of no longer having enough food to feed the planet which is a bizarre thing to think about in our current age of caloric abundance, but it's a real possibility. And it's worth noting that calories are not really the right thing to focus on here. We've actually gotten pretty good at producing artificial calories. The real issue is getting the proper vitamins and minerals so that we're not deficient, and producing those en masse on scale, and in a way that we actually digest and utilize them, is not easy. The best way to take these things in, typically, is through fresh food. 
This is part of why food deserts are such an issue for residents who do not have access to fresh food. People in such areas might be well-fed in the sense of caloric intake, but they're not getting what they need to be healthy and happy and operating at full steam. Populations without the proper nutritional access suffer from a wider range of medical conditions and physical deficiencies than those with ample access, and the whole world could, in the near future, lose the access that we've come to take for granted. There's a lot of doom and gloom here, and rightfully so, but one facet of this conversation that isn't often addressed and considered except maybe by speculative science fiction writers, is that we have the capability to roll with all of this, to evolve ourselves, our systems, and our technologies to not just survive, but to continue living at a very high standard, potentially an even higher standard than we enjoy today. Will it require change? Yes. Will our idea of success and happiness vary greatly from what's become the globalized standard of the early 21st century? Almost certainly, yes. But will that be okay? And would anyone 50 years from now, growing up in the world we could probably build, choose to go back in time to today so they could have a cheap Big Mac or drive their own car? I doubt it. If we play our cards right, I'm guessing there will always be nostalgia but in the same way we currently look back at the 1950s today, it's kind of neat to think about with all the day drinking and nice suits and people wearing fancy hats like it's no big deal. But few people would actually want to live in an age where everyone's smoking indoors all the time. Women and minorities are treated like trash. And the average quality of life, even for a very wealthy person, is lower in many ways than that of a low-income person living today. Enough has changed that making that journey backward would not be worth it, and I think we'll probably feel the same 50 years in the future, despite all these crazy changes that will be occurring around us. But in order to achieve that possible, desirable future, we'll have to make some very difficult choices. And one such choice, an opportunity, if you want to think about it that way, has traditionally been considered a non-starter in discussions on the topic of climate but is acquiring more supporters by the day. The article I want to unspool today addresses this option head-on. It comes from the website Futurism and is entitled, Our Climate is Changing Rapidly. It's time to talk about geoengineering. Geoengineering is, in essence, taking hands-on responsibility for how the planet changes for forcing evolution to some degree, but also building new catalysts and keeping a hand on the wheel when it comes to certain processes that are, at the moment, uncontrollable and even seemingly random or unknowable. Agriculture, arguably, was our first attempt at geoengineering. In nature, plants do not grow the way that we grow crops. They don't grow in neat lines with a bunch of the same plant taking up a solid chunk of land, and all possible invasive species pulled up or poisoned. They're not fed a steady diet of fluids, and their soil is not processed to increase nutrients. Growing food in this systematized way, rather than simply gathering what we could find in nature, was what allowed us to become the species we've become. It increased our nutritional intake, and it freed up time and energy to spend on other things like developing modern societies and other social systems. 
Potential future geoengineering could be of the same variety, and will, very likely, if we choose to take that route, require some changes in the way that we grow crops. After all, the crops we grow today are optimized for today's climate. If everything changes the way it looks like it's going to, those crops won't attain the same yields. We'll see more climate shifts that kill crops before they can be harvested, and some currently reliable plants just flat out won't grow if the average temperature changes by one degree in either direction. The technological solution would be to move everything indoors, growing the majority of our crops in greenhouses the way they do in places like Iceland and the Netherlands today. We might also continue along the proposed route of mass-producing sky farms, which are essentially giant vertical greenhouses, the size of skyscrapers, which can be built anywhere, even in the middle of dense cities. Because we would control the environment inside of these buildings, this would allow us to continue growing, as we've always grown, and to have finer-grained control over the types of things that we grow, and when we harvest them. So same plants as today, though probably with better yields, better distribution options, and maybe even upgraded plants, as we tweak them to operate better under those conditions. The geoengineering solution, on the other hand, would involve, probably, gene-editing plants to make them more rugged and more resilient to climate change. We'd probably adjust existing plants to start with, but we might even invent our own as we get better at the technologies involved which would allow us to create superfoods and even plants that help set back the climate clock to a time before our planet cycled away from the norm to which we've become accustomed. What that means in practice is that we could develop new plants that will change with the climate, but also plants that suck up more CO2 and other greenhouse gases than today's plants, which would allow us to heal some of the damage we've caused and stabilize the climate to something more tolerable for our existing ecology. Other proposed geoengineering solutions are less conventional. There's nothing super strange about planting more trees, for instance, and many of our geoengineering options are of that variety, essentially just improved or amplified versions of what we're already doing. Some are a little more out there, though, and resultantly are a lot more controversial. Almost 30 years ago, the oceanographer John Martin proposed undertaking a large-scale iron fertilization project, which, in essence, would mean dumping tons and tons of iron sulfate crystals into the ocean, which would, in turn, stimulate the growth of phytoplankton, which are plankton that operate a bit like tiny trees, in that they absorb carbon dioxide from the air, and then they release oxygen into the water. So this is a little more out there than just planting trees, but this is still a geoengineering project that would really just involve tweaking natural processes and amplifying them to serve our ends. We've put a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere, and these phytoplankton already, naturally, soak up CO2. So how can we make more phytoplankton? Well, they are fueled by the elements contained within iron, so how about we dump a bunch of iron into the ocean? It's a simple concept but a highly controversial one, in no small part because of the potential downsides of this plan, which include, first, the possibility that it wouldn't have much of an effect, and thus would be a waste of time and resources, and second, when phytoplankton die, they attract bacteria that devour all the oxygen that the phytoplankton produced 
when they sucked up the CO2 from the air. This could, in turn, create large oceanic dead zones, which are almost completely devoid of oxygen, and consequently, almost completely devoid of other life as well. Several of these already exist around the world that we know of already. So even though rebel geoengineers will sometimes buy their own boats and dump loads of iron into the ocean to show the world that this technique could possibly work, thus far it's never been shown to have a positive impact that would outweigh the very serious possible consequences. And that is something that we could say about essentially every method of geoengineering that's been dreamed up and proposed. Consider the sunlight obstructionary methods, like creating reflective cloud cover by seeding the stratosphere with aerosols, or the very interesting and cool-seeming proposals to build giant mirrors or shields in space that would reflect a portion of the sun's rays away from the Earth, which would lessen the heat absorbed into the atmosphere, which in turn could counteract the average temperature increase caused by the greenhouse gases we've added to the atmosphere over the years. The aerosol method would essentially replicate what happens when supervolcanoes erupt, which could be great in terms of cooling things down, as those ash clouds can be super reflective, but would also have many of the same downsides of a supervolcano eruption. Namely, the northern hemisphere would do pretty well, but at the expense of the southern hemisphere, or vice versa, depending on where the aerosols were concentrated. Similarly, a giant mirror or other shield in space, if we could build such a thing, might be able to deflect a percentage of the sunlight that would otherwise hit the planet, but there would also be a giant space mirror shadow cast down upon some portion of the Earth at all times, meaning there would be some portion of the planet stuck in perpetual darkness with all that entails. Having wintered in Iceland and having dealt with 24 hours of darkness for about a week during the winter solstice there, I can tell you that the charm of perpetual night wears off very quickly, not to mention the natural processes that would be disrupted as a consequence of something like this. Another huge concern with anything geoengineering related is that, well, we'd still have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions because otherwise the problem would continue to get worse and worse, just at a slower rate. And if we ever stopped geoengineering, or if our space mirror broke or stopped working for whatever reason, and we didn't decrease our footprint enough in the meantime, there would be a severe bounce-back effect that would bring about a century's worth of change in around five years or a decade. Not good especially considering that one of the main reasons to pursue a geoengineering solution would be to allow folks on Earth to continue living their polluting greenhouse gas-emitting lifestyles, at least to some degree. So the better solution, it would seem, would be to simply move away from these lifestyles and replace them with something else, post-haste. Even though it's probably more politically popular to try to come up with solutions that don't require anyone to change anything about the way that they live. It's unlikely that we can stop the ball that's already rolling, that we can prevent the climate from shifting two or three degrees Celsius on average at the very least, or that we can keep the severity of weather conditions from increasing fairly dramatically. That damage is done. But we can adjust our behaviors to lessen the intensity of the resulting problems. And we can adjust our behaviors to make room for these new realities, unpleasant as that thought may be. It's almost certainly better than the alternatives. Giant space mirrors on one hand, or a non-stop runaway greenhouse effect until we're all literally cooked 
by our own atmosphere on the other. Another facet of this conversation is that the traditional views of geoengineering seem to be shifting, even if we haven't arrived at a methodology or technology that would allow us to do it without risk. The United Nations published a piece on the subject in November of 2017, saying that geoengineering should be considered as a supplement to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, not as a plan B, the way that it's traditionally been framed. Meaning, some of these options may be viable, but if we commit to them, we have to perform them alongside the phasing out of fossil fuel energy and alongside the restructuring of society so that we consume less, while hopefully keeping our standards of living high. Part of their rationale here in addressing this topic and presenting their opinion on it was so that they could also address the issue of geoengineering governance. They specifically mentioned stratospheric aerosol injection as something that could, first, be achieved by a small government or wealthy tycoon, and second, something that could have immensely deleterious effects on a great number of people, even if the heart of the person or country doing the deed would be in the right place. So what they'd like to see is a discussion of governance over the topic, perhaps creating a body that will come up with consequences for those undertaking geoengineering projects without proper approval from representatives of essentially the whole planet, since everyone on the planet could be impacted by rogue geoengineering projects. They want to establish a means of discussing such things now so that it's widely understood what's okay and what's not, what's been tested and shown effective and what hasn't, and what the proper processes for conducting such work should be. It's important to recognize the assumption that lay at the root of this entire concept. Basically, that the planet and its ecosystem is not sacred. Or said another way, that we are not just capable of changing it, of adjusting the dials to suit our own purposes and our own survival, but that doing so might be morally defensible. This is an assumption that would seem to fly in the face of many traditional belief systems, those which hold that the world is perfect and was brought into being as is, and in some way or another is really just great, and anything that happens, happens. It was meant to be. Messing with this kind of perfect system would be a Tower of Babel situation, an example of we humans getting above ourselves and trying to understand and control forces that are not ours to dabble in. There's also a secular conception of the world, which is often called the Gaia hypothesis, that says essentially that the world is a planet-sized organism and that all the creatures, big and small, are kind of like cells. The root systems of trees and magma channels deep underground are like capillaries, and the tidal forces and wind and everything else are kind of like metabolism and circulation. Some version of this is actually baked into a lot of spiritual practices, religious and otherwise, and a lot of people who are not even spiritual find it to be a valuable metaphor, if not something that's literally true. Scale up to the universal, scale down to the microscopic, and it's the same patterns, no matter what the size. So it's not unbelievable that the patterns that make up a complex life might also make up the planet upon which that life develops. To allow ourselves to geoengineer the earth, then, we have to accept that it's okay to mess with God's gift to us, or it's okay for us, these little cells in a larger system, to adjust that system so that it's more survivable, 
and even comfortable, optimal for us, even if that could make it less so for other cells, other processes, other parts of the puzzle. It requires, in essence, that we have a shared system of morality that revolves around valuing, if not humanity specifically, complex conscious life. Because the root of allowing ourselves to geoengineer is the struggle to survive and to put ourselves and to a lesser degree our existing ecosphere that evolved within the confines of our current climate first to put those things above anything that might evolve in the future within different climate realities and above anything we might have to kill off to rearrange things to suit us presented in that way this concept can be a difficult pill to swallow it may be good for us, and it may be something that we might be able to contribute to personally, lest we doom billions of human beings to near certain death, or at the very least slow devastation. But since these choices are often in other people's hands, in the hands of the politicians and other powerful people who run things under our current system, it's easier to have quibbles and qualms, to keep more of the gray areas in hard focus rather than the difficult-to-think-about realities. Which is good in a sense because that allows us to function day to day, but also negative in a sense because it keeps us from contributing to the larger, vitally important solutions. We are part of the societal structure that will need to be mobilized to make any meaningful change, but we're not the ones guiding that machine in most cases. And thus, it's easy to vote against our long-term interests and make individual-scale decisions that do not align with what we intellectually, philosophically, know we need to do. If we do decide to fully commit ourselves to geoengineering and similar fields of study and technologies, we could learn a lot of valuable things. We could set ourselves up to be true global protectors and managers who are empowered to actually balance things, to help achieve equilibrium on a planet-sized ecosystem that we have accidentally disrupted again and again, in part because for most of our history, we lacked the scale of thinking required to perceive it as such, and in part because we lacked the power to do anything about it. And if we did develop the means to do something about it, that might help us achieve and enshrine big picture thinking and universal scale foresight as a species. Rather than thinking 5 or 10 years into the future, we might start thinking 100 and 1,000 and 10,000 years into the future. And we might begin to recognize how our behaviors today influence what happens generations later. Because on the planetary scale, on the planet-sized ecosystem scale, those durations begin to matter a whole lot more than the seconds and hours and years that we usually use to measure things today. Or rather, they matter alongside those smaller units of time because we will be able to see that what we do now, in this moment, reverberates into the future and can be amplified along the way. We may become more capable, then, of expanding outward into the universe, not as a species that searches endlessly for resources to consume, but as a culture that's capable of establishing closed loops and balance wherever we go. Of course, it could also go in another direction. We could come to realize that these planetary cycles and considerations are too big for us, and instead move inward, retreating inside our technology. We might develop closed loops, but on a scale more suitable to enclosed biodomes and spaceships than planets. This wouldn't necessarily be a negative thing. It could be that one leads to the other, 
our knowledge of closed loops that allows us to sustain ourselves in an unfriendly environment, tucked away in our spacesuits and spaceships, could lead one day to rebuilding that unfriendly environment and making it more friendly. I don't see why we couldn't pursue both aims at the same time, but it does seem prudent to move toward at least one or the other, since the third broad option is accepting these forces as too big to understand, or too complex to bother with, and as a result, continuously being caught flat-footed when things change around us, potentially being wiped out as a species every time the climate shifts or an asteroid knocks out modern civilization. This is what we've been doing up till this point, and we are on the brink of being able to change that trajectory. We just have to decide it's important enough to make some sacrifices and perhaps restructure the way we've been doing things accordingly. In the meantime, though, today, I wonder if we'll be able to make such a decision collectively in the first place. The tools we have at hand are borderline miraculous compared to what we had a mere half-century ago. But we still haven't unleashed their full potential, and there are a lot of antique ideas and technologies that keep us mentally sequestered from dreaming big, from dreaming beyond the rewards of today. There are immense inequalities that keep us from utilizing our species' full potential, with a huge chunk of our species' physical and mental prowess relegated to lower social strata, while the rest of us struggle mightily to not fall, lest we find ourselves down there with those who we have apparently decided through action or passivity to not include in the amazing transformation that we are undergoing as a globe-straddling society. All of which is to say that there's a lot to be concerned about when it comes to big projects like geoengineering and the accompanying efforts that might help us reduce our global climate-shifting footprint. And there are a lot of supplementary issues that we're going to have to get sorted if we want to tackle our climate-related concerns optimally. We could potentially solve the climate problem without also solving the social disparity problem, but it does seem that the success of the former will be more likely if we also spare a thought and some effort for the latter. All of these things are connected, so improvements in one space tend to beneficially bleed over into the other. It's also worth asking if the gatekeepers and policymakers of today, the ones that arguably got us into this mess to begin with, are the ones who are most capable of solving these problems. This isn't a wholesale criticism of today's systems of governments and economics. They have led to a whole lot of good alongside the bad. But it is a question about whether what we're seeing happen in nature is an unavoidable consequence of these systems, and if something new might be required to actually solve it. If we can't get out from under this looming climate catastrophe, in other words, because the systems we use today naturally lead us in that direction, to that type of catastrophe. I truly don't know if that's the case. I hope it's not. Because although I don't think where we're at is the final stage of human civilization, of human social development, I also think there will be a lot of other fires to put out if and when things change, and if a wholesale rethinking of social organization and economic theory is required before we can get to these other issues, well, that is a lot of fire to handle all at once. Whatever the case may be, this is a topic worth keeping in mind and mulling over and researching further, as it's connected to essentially every other issue a person might care and worry about today. 
and that very much includes both decisions we make as individuals and the choices that we make as individual members of larger societies. The book that I'd like to recommend today was one that I listened to as an audiobook, but it's also available as a paperback. It's entitled Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World by Jack Weatherford. And maybe I should say Genghis Khan. Both Jack and one of my favorite podcast hosts, Dan Carlin, have pronounced his name Genghis Khan, so that's probably the correct and more informed way of saying his name. But this book on Genghis Khan was incredibly fascinating from the beginning to the end of his life, including his famous lineage that went on to essentially conquer two continents. And they played a massive role in the history of human society, both Eastern and Western society, even though it's very often left out of the Western-focused history books except to paint the Mongolian culture as a rampaging horde, which it was in a way, but that leaves out to me some of the most important aspects of this culture. They did a lot of things before any other culture on earth. The idea of getting rid of hereditary caste systems, the idea of freedom of religion, not to mention the various economic systems that they put into place, partially because of necessity and partially because of sheer cleverness. It's a fairly long book. It was over 14 hours on Audible, so it's substantial, however you take it in. But it kept my attention all the way through. If you like, as I do, to try to piece together disparate bits of history that you've learned over the years, the story of Genghis Khan is a vitally important piece of connective tissue to put those other pieces together. So if you're looking for something interesting, looking to learn, but also be somewhat entertained by an incredibly colorful and creative leader and warlord, somebody who almost seems like a comic book character rather than a real person, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World is an amazing introduction to that character. And again, that's by Jack Weatherford. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.